Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club. I must confess that the first time I saw Love's Labour's Lost, I saw it in Japanese. I had read the play on the bullet train to Osaka, where the show was performed, and so I read the play and saw the play for the first time, both on the same day. Now, my Japanese is okay, and I could follow the story, but what I suppose I didn't really get was the exuberant play with the English language. For the record, the Japanese production was really wonderful, and I've never seen a Japanese audience respond as happily and heartily to any other show. Certainly not by Shakespeare, anyway. But this is a play in English. Of all of Shakespeare's plays, I think this one is maybe the most remote and the most inaccessible, at least on paper. It's not based on any other material, and its story is not particularly complicated. What it does have, in spades, is a relish for language and for wordplay that is more pronounced than any other of his plays. And play really seems to be the word for it. Everyone in the piece plays along, and they're all at the height of their play and their games when it's brought to its abrupt conclusion, rather like a whistle being blown to signal the end of a match. The story, in a nutshell, is that the young king of Navarre and three of his mates all swear an oath to study for three years shunning all pleasures other than learning. This exclusion is particularly aimed at women, and indeed any woman who comes near them is to have her tongue caught out, a kind of cruelty more suited to Rome's wilderness of tigers than the merry court of Navarre. No sooner have the young gentlemen all signed their oaths then word comes that the Princess of France is arriving and, royal as she is, she needs to be accommodated. But they've sworn not to let anyone into the court and therefore the poor princess and her friends have to be lodged in a tent outside. Conveniently for the play, the princess also has three ladies with her and this leads neatly to a set of four couples. They all seem to have met before at various courtly locations, among them Alençon, Brabant and the like, Once the princess and the king have discussed the formal business behind the visit, there's a little time to kill, and it soon becomes apparent that all four men would really like to break their oaths and try to woo these lovely French ladies. These are clever girls, of course, and don't make it easy, but eventually, after much wordplay and flirtation and chicanery and some dancing, it looks like four lovely matches have been made. Meanwhile, The court is also populated with a variety of Navarre's locals, including Holofernes the tutor, Nathaniel the curate, Costard the clown, Moth a page, and a fantastical Spaniard, Don Armado, who seems to be there to entertain the king and his fellows. Armado and Costard are both in love with a young lady called Jacquinetta, and there's a clever mix-up of letters within the play that does much to reveal several characters and their intentions. Eventually, this motley crew of locals tries to put on a pageant for the visiting French ladies, and it's going moderately well until a fight breaks out because Jacquinetta is pregnant with Armado's child, and just as everyone is getting involved in the fray, a messenger arrives from France. The king, the princess's father, has died, and so there is no way anyone is getting married. The couples all agree to wait a year and try again, and they all depart in separate directions. As stories go, it doesn't seem enormously exciting or dramatic, but I wonder if this isn't the point. The piece is so erudite, so full of references, that my first question as I got to know it was who on earth it could have been for. 
There's quite a lot of Latin in the play, and I don't really think the average groundling would have felt that this was for him or her. What's important is that this play appears at a moment when English was coming into its own. Shakespeare is notorious for the number of words he invented, as English was still finding its feet. The great achievements of this period are, of course, Shakespeare's plays and poems, but also the King James Bible, which finally affirmed that English could be, and was now, as important as Latin. You feel in this play that Shakespeare is spreading his linguistic wings and really starting to fly quite high. Given all of the show-off references and segments that might seem quite fussy to us today, there are suggestions that this was actually written for a private performance. Arguments have been made that it was for a party at the home of the Earl of Southampton and that the show went so well that the Earl became Shakespeare's patron. Another theory, one that I rather like, is that it was written and performed for Queen Elizabeth when she was visiting Oxford. The various Latin and Greek references definitely align with the idea that this was for a very highbrow audience. And think about the heroine. She is an unmarried princess with a very impressive father. Throughout the play, the Princess of France is really quite lovely. Her manners are impeccable, her lines are smart, she enjoys the hunt, and she's very attractive. Not only that, she is a generous and indulgent audience member towards the end of the play. By the end of the story, the death of her father somewhat curtails any immediate hopes of having fun and consorting with foreign princes, and she must follow her duty and go home. If the piece and that character were designed to flatter Elizabeth I, I assume it must have worked. Not only that, the character of that fantastical Spaniard Don Armado does sort of sound like Armada, which was a word that certainly would have entertained the Queen in the aftermath of you-know-what. The Princess and her would-be counterpart, the King of Spain, are charming, if a little anodyne. Shakespeare is wise enough to portray them nicely without making them the show-offs of the piece. That role is reserved for Barone and his counterpart, Rosaline. Barone is, for some critics, a forerunner for Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, and even for Falstaff. He's the only one to resist the oath at the beginning of the play, but even he is won over and he does eventually sign it. He's also the last of the four men to confess that, yes... He has fallen for one of the girls, and that girl is Rosaline. Obviously, she isn't quite the same character from Verona, since the girl doesn't actually appear in Romeo and Juliet. But I do quite like the idea that this Rosaline knows better than to listen too earnestly to protestations of love from a poetically extravagant young man, once bitten, twice shy. Different critics seem to have very strong opinions of her, Some think she's a complete sadist, a malign and negative influence seething at the heart of this play. But I wonder if she can be that dark, given the poetry she inspires. Oh, and on the matter of dark, it's worth mentioning that she is referred to as dark, but this is just to contrast the colour of her hair with the others. I get the sense that Catherine and Maria, the other two girls, are supposed to be blonde, and of course I at least want to think that the princess is a redhead. Considering the zeal with which the merry gentlemen signed their oath of abstinence, Rosaline must be pretty special to inspire the following from Barone. And when love speaks, the voice of all the gods makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. Never durst poet touch a pen to write 
until his ink were tempered with love's sighs. Oh, then his lines would ravish savage ears and plant in tyrants mild humility. From women's eyes this doctrine I derive. They sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books, the arts, the academes that show, contain and nourish all the world. Else none at all in aught proves excellent. It does take quite a few volleys back and forth before any progress is made between the various potential lovers. There's a great deal of talk in this play about how Cupid is blind and how love is, for men primarily, experienced through the eyes. They're always talking about eyes and blindness and love at first sight. There's also a lot of talk about food and eating, as that the whole affair is a big banquet. Even the clever page Moth gets a good joke on the subject. They have been at a great feast of languages and stolen the scraps. Given the likely private nature of the original performance for this play, there's some conjecture that some of the various names and characters are references to real people. Isaac Asimov wrote a huge two-volume companion to Shakespeare, and in his chapter on Love's Labour's Lost, he goes into extensive detail about who the King, Dumaine, Longueville and Barone might be, as well as discussing the royal houses of Navarre, France, Aragon and Castile. So if you want to know more about who's who, and not just these, but also Holofernes and various others, that's a great place to look. Asimov was also very helpful for the one big idea that I thought I had about the play, concerning perhaps the strangest of its characters, that fantastical Spaniard. The first thing worth remembering is that this is a play set in Navarre. The majority of this territory, as was, is in northern Spain, just south of the Pyrenees. Some of it extended into southern France too, but for the most part we can assume it's in the country area we now know as Spain. As such, a fantastical Spaniard is really just a fantastical local. It always confuses me that in a play set in Spain, just the one character would wind up being performed with a Spanish accent. Indeed, there's also the problem of the French ladies, who all speak exactly the same language as their Spanish boyfriends. Kenneth Branagh's film of this play, which uses less than half of Shakespeare's text, has an outrageous performance from Timothy Spall as Don Armado. It's beyond cartoonish, and it doesn't really add much to what is otherwise a charming little film. What struck me as I read, and when you read the play, you'll see there's nothing much in his text to make you think he's a crazy Espanish accent caricature, is the potential similarity with another fantastical character. Don Armado speaks like nobody else. He speaks non-stop, really. But it's not really a mockery. He's certainly prone to exaggeration and exaggerated courtesies and notions and so on, but we love him for it, and he's almost heroic in this lunacy. In all this, he reminded me of Don Quixote, that glorious creation of Shakespeare's close contemporary, Miguel Cervantes. Asimov is the only commentator whose work I read this week to mention the idea at all, and he also points out that, alas, Don Quixote wasn't written until at least ten years after the latest probable date for Love's Labour's Lost. So, there goes my nice idea. Except for the fact that, late in Cervantes' novel, his fantastical Spaniard is received and gently taken care of at the home of a duke and duchess, in a manner not dissimilar to how the princess and the king treat him in Navarre. 
So, rather gloriously, he's suggesting that perhaps it's the other way around, and that it was Shakespeare that might have somehow inspired Cervantes. We do know that the traffic of ideas did eventually flow the other way, and that Shakespeare's lost play, Cardinio, was based on an episode from Don Quixote. Led by said Don Armado, the gang of strange locals, attendants to the king's court, attempt to stage a pageant of the Nine Worthies for the princess towards the end of the play. For those of you who like statistics, the last scene of Love's Labour's Lost is the longest scene of any play by Shakespeare, and it takes up about a third of the whole play. This play also features the longest single word in all of Shakespeare, honorificabilitudinitatibus. Try saying that a few times. The only reason I can is because I have a degree, would you believe, in Latin. As you, of course, will know, it means in the state of being able to receive honours. So much for Shakespeare having small Latin and less Greek. Maybe he was making a point in this play. Bear in mind that Holofernes, a name perhaps familiar from the biblical book of Judith, is also the Latin teacher in Rabelais' French novel Gargantua and Pantagruel. If Shakespeare wanted to show people that he was capable of an erudite referential play, he certainly succeeded. This pageant of the worthies is a complete mess, since poor Nathaniel forgets his lines and has to be prompted by Costard. Costard himself plays Pompey the Great, who somehow has replaced Julius Caesar, who would have been the more usual fixture in a list of the nine worthies. The princess is sweet and she's very encouraging to Nathaniel as he flubs his lines, but the young men are very rude throughout, and their jokes about Judas Maccabeus become so smutty and silly, Jude ass and the like, that poor Holofernes proclaims that this is not generous, not gentle, not humble. Shakespeare was resolutely not among the group of academically sophisticated playwrights referred to as the university wits. Is there maybe a little sense here of him showing, to Elizabeth herself perhaps, just how tacky it can be for these smart young men to take pot shots at the sincere efforts of less sophisticated country performances? Time has certainly proven that he had nothing to worry about in terms of competition, but maybe this rude behaviour was a little dig he couldn't resist presenting before the Queen. The said young men continue their mockery of Hector, played by Don Armado, and as it starts to look like a fight will break out between him and Costard, the whole scene builds and builds. The madness of the whole enterprise, the pageant, the exuberant observations, generous or not, and even the burgeoning romances between the four couples, it's all brought into very sharp relief by the arrival of a messenger from France. It's as if they're all having this massive party, wild, unadulterated everything, and then somebody walks in and turns the lights on. His name is Mercade, or Mercade, perhaps inspired by Mercury, although one critic even has gone so far as to suggest that his name is a mangled version of Arcadia, an attempt to make us think of the notion of et in Arcadia ego. Even in the happiest places, death must appear. At around the same time as this play, Sir Philip Sidney was writing his great romance, Arcadia, so who knows if such ideas were in the literary air. This messenger does indeed bring news of death, and all the play, all of the games, all of love's labours, are not won but lost. The play ends on a mostly wistful note. 
the various couples swear to wait out the appropriate mourning period, a year, and Rosaline, proving that she really has no more time for idle wits and pointless talk and romancers, makes Barone promise to go and spend the year entertaining sick people in hospitals. To weed this wormwood from your fruitful brain, and therewithal to win me, if you please, without the which I am not to be won, you shall this twelve-month term from day to day visit the speechless sick and still converse with groaning wretches, and your task shall be, with all the fierce endeavour of your wit, to enforce the painted impotent to smile. Barone is sceptical, and in this I wonder if Shakespeare is actually challenging himself. To move wild laughter in the throat of death, it cannot be, it is impossible. Mirth cannot move a soul in agony. We've already seen various ways in which Shakespeare was starting to test the limits of comedy. Romeo and Juliet is just seconds away from being a dark comedy with a happy ending. Titus Andronicus has some of the grisliest jokes in all of literature, and now Barone is left promising that he will bestow his wit on sick people and try to make them laugh. Stranger still, Rosaline makes him promise that if sick people won't laugh at his idle scorns, as she puts it, then he should have done with his particular brand of comedy and change his ways. Shakespeare himself is far from done with comedy, but in this one he resists anything even close to a happy ending. The couples all have to part, and it ends with Don Armado begging the indulgence to allow the last section of their pageant, a dialogue between the owl and the cuckoo. Again resisting any kind of a comic order, in this song we go from spring to winter, rather than the other way around. Notably, we also move to a very English feeling. This glamorous, almost cosmopolitan play has French princesses and varyingly fantastical Spaniards, with endless references to Latin and Greek mythology, to German clocks, dancing Russians and Muscovites. But now we move to a thoroughly English countryside. There's a deep affection here for the ordinary progress of the seasons, perhaps for the life that Shakespeare left behind in Stratford. I'm currently reading a novel about his life, and it features a character called Joan, inspired, I am sure, by this play, which references the name on numerous occasions. And this image that we're left with is of people huddled up together for warmth around a fire as the dinner is being stirred on the stove. When icicles hang by the wall, and Dick the shepherd blows his nail, and Tom bears logs into the hall, and milk comes frozen home in pail, when blood is nipped and ways be foul, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit to a merry note, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. When all aloud the wind doth blow, and coughing drowns the parson's saw, and birds sit brooding in the snow, and Marian's nose looks red and raw, then roasted crabs hiss in the bowl, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit to woo, a merry note, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. Weird as this ending might seem on paper, it is a curiously strong sucker punch. Every time I've seen it staged, I've wound up with a lump in my throat. That Japanese production I mentioned all took place under a beautiful willow tree, and by some magic the lights all turned from green to a melancholy grey over the course of that final song. The slight sort of our revels now are ended feeling can be very powerful, 
and the final lines hover almost like an oracle at the end. The words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo. You that way, we this way. And the various characters we have come to know do just that. They go their separate ways. If you're following this book club project in real time, you'll know that we are approaching late June, and so next week there's really only one play we should look at, and that is, of course, A Midsummer Night's Dream. If you haven't seen or read it before, you have a treat in store for you. It is one of Shakespeare's funniest and most entertaining plays, so I hope you will read it. Stay up late some night this week and enjoy it, and I'll speak to you next time.